0: Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. We are in a new series this week. Um, if you could change that slide for me, Derek, that'd be great. <laughs> cool. Okay. So this morning, so as um, Matt spoke last week to introduce our series, um, we are in this series called I Am, um, and I've been looking forward to doing this series for months now, really um, getting into um, these seven statements of, of Jesus in the Gospel of John, um, about, the, about him talking about this, this self-declaration of who he is. And so we um, will be going through those seven statements plus another self-declaration statement as well. So there's eight sort of weeks in all, plus the introduction last week. That's a nine-week series. And if you've got a calendar and you can do maths, you'll see that it actually takes us right up to Christmas Day. So we are technically in Advent for us right now. (laughs) Um, And I'm actually... I've done that intentionally. Because between now and Christmas, what I'm hoping for is that our Christological understanding increases. That our capacity to start to outwork not only our head knowledge, but also understanding who Jesus was and who Jesus is and what he declares about himself actually starts to get some more colour for us, us. And it starts to shape a different picture than what we think we know. Because these seven statements or these eight weeks are actually the basis of who Jesus says he actually is. And it's not just, so we're in um, the bread of life this morning and often we'll read the story and it's like, oh yeah, okay, bread of life, move on to the next statement. But the idea of what that actually means, not only theologically and Christologically, but also characterization of who Jesus actually is will enable us to be able to outwork our understanding of him even even more that's my hope for this series okay just not that we can go away and go oh I know a bit more now it's about how we then engraft that into our lives and then outwork that because we know a bit more about who Jesus was that's my hope are we okay with that excellent So let's get started. So we are in chapter 6 of of the Gospel of John. Um, I'm going to be starting to read from verse 26, and I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Jesus answered. So he's um, just had the feeding of the 5,000. He's walked on water. He's crossed into a new land, back into Capernaum, and then he um, is now talking to a crowd. So Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, You are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do that we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, so give us this bread always. I'm the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one comes no one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty. Again. Who here watches the show The Amazing Race? Anybody? It's it's been going for 20 seasons. I don't... I understand if you've given up on it. I have too. (laughs) So who actually has watched it in the past and understands what this show, The Amazing Race, is? Okay, most people. For those of you who don't, you don't need to go and watch it, but that's fine. Um, I don't anymore. And so let me just briefly fill you in on what The Amazing Race is. So The Amazing Race is... Technically, it's just a race around the world, okay? So groups of contestants in pairs start a location somewhere in the world um, and then they have to race to different checkpoints or check-in points around the globe. And they have to fill. They have to do a whole bunch of different tasks, and they, a whole bunch of different stuff um, that they have to sort of get. And then they then they have to then check in on a regular basis. And the last people who check in at each checkpoint usually get eliminated, and then the last people end up winning. And it's the same formula, so it gets pretty boring after a while. But what I always found funny that when I used to watch The Amazing Race was that there were these contestants flying around the world, literally and figuratively, and they were going to these amazing places, these exotic locations, these bucket list locations where people go, before I die, I must go there. And they are literally going, oh, oh," getting getting a clue, and then they're gone. And I would suggest if you ask most of them after the race they wouldn't be able to remember half the places that they'd been to let alone what what was going on there and so the thing is they weren't focused on the location they were focused on the race and then getting to the next place the goal of the contestants was not the end in and of itself. The goal of the contestants was to find the next clue, do the next task and get to the next checkpoint. And so our passage today is a bit like The Amazing Race. If we're not careful, we can end up either like the crowd in The Passage or like the contestants in The Amazing Race and be so focused on the minute detail that we actually miss the majesty of the location. So it's important that even though we're going through the detail of what's going on and the Old Testament stuff that feeds into this, the idea that we get lost in the detail of it and forget the location and the majesty of what Jesus is actually telling us is really, really important that we don't miss the point. That we don't go through somewhere amazing and realize that we've missed it. So the thing is, in order to get a full picture of what Jesus in this passage was saying about himself, um, he says it in the context of feeding of the 5,000. And so we know the story, it's in most of the Gospels, and so we read over the feeding of the 5,000 and we don't really understand what's going on there. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about the feeding of the 5,000. Excuse me. The only thing I'm going to talk about is from John chapter 6, verse 4, tells us that the feeding of the 5,000 took place during Passover time. Now that doesn't mean much to us nowadays. It's just a thing in the detail that we completely read over. I know I did before I actually started looking at it. But the thing is the gospel writer John is actually giving us some really specific information that we need to know in order to grasp the concept of what's actually happening here in this whole passage. So now we need to talk about the Exodus and the Passover, so to make sure that we're all on the same page. So now if I was to ask you, what some of the most important historical events in history are that have shaped um, nations, you could probably name a few. You know, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Long March. Um, the, for Muslims, it would be Muhammad's revelations. For Christians, it's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. For the Israelites, for the Jews, it's the Exodus. The Exodus is the event that shaped the Jewish people. It is central to their understanding of who they are as a people. They were slaves in Egypt, um, just in case you are not aware of what the exodus was, the, the, in the, the, at the end of the book of Genesis, we see that the people go into um, Egypt and several, and then from the uh, book of Exodus at the start, they're now slaves. Um, Moses is called by God to confront Pharaoh to free the Israelites. Pharaoh wouldn't, obviously. And so God rained down 10 plagues. Um, and the final plague being the death of every firstborn. The only way to escape the final plague was to sacrifice a lamb and paint the lamb's blood on your doorframe and then the Spirit of God would pass over that house and not kill the inhabitants. Now, the people were finally released from their bondage and the Lord through Moses part of the Red Sea and helped them escape. We often refer that Moses part of the Red Sea. I would suggest it was an act of God. <laughs> and then they traveled through the wilderness for 40 years, which in their language is a generation. So every, one of the single, every single one of the Israelites, I think except for three or two, that passed out of Egypt into the wilderness, all of them died. The whole generation. So then when they went into the promised land eventually, it was a whole new generation of Israelites who went in to the promised land. And it was in the wilderness, during the the, the season of Exodus, that the Jewish people and their ethic were transformed. God gives them the law. He set up a camp amongst them in the tabernacle. They are a new nation. They are God's people and He is their God. The Exodus is about redemption, it's about covenant, it's about promise, it's about law. Everything central to the tenets of the Israelite people happened and was defined during the exodus Um, i was reading some jewish literature on this in my study and one of the uh, writers said this the secret of the impact of the exodus is that it does not present itself as ancient history that it's not a one-time event it is an ongoing event that continues to shape the nation of israel to this day It is an event that can still be entered into still. So when we look at our history and we remember something in our past, we remember it as in it happened back then sometime. So the thing is with the Israelites, when they do the Passover meal, so if you know anything about the Passover meal, it is in the book of Exodus, they are given really specific things to do. Kill a lamb, do this, do that, you know put your sandals on, all that sort of stuff. During a Passover meal for the, for the, for the Jewish people today, they still do all of those things. And they don't talk about it in the past tense. They talk about God saving them in the present tense. They still enter into that experience today. And so when we start to look back in um, the Gospel of John, John mentions the Passover three times. And that's one of the reasons why we think that Jesus had three years of earthly ministry before he was crucified is because John notes that there were three Passovers. And each time that John mentions those three Passovers, he wants us to understand something. Um, And what the gospel writer is doing is that in those three events, he's taking whatever's happening, he's redefining it, and then Jesus is then applying that new redefined meaning to himself. Okay, let's go through a couple of them. So the first one, when Jesus, oh, so when John mentions the Passover, is in the cleansing of the temple in chapter two, verse thirteen. Um, it, it says the Jewish Passover was near, so Jesus went up to the Jerusalem. Now the people were treating the temple as a marketplace; they were treating it as a trading hall. So Jesus, being the meek and mild Jesus that we all know him to be makes a whip flips over tables and casts out everybody and he talks about that he has this zeal for his father's house now the thing is I think we often misunderstand what temple means because temple wasn't just an elaborate church it wasn't just what we would consider a cathedral today it was the beating heart Jerusalem it was the center of worship and music it was the center of politics and society it was the place where national celebration and national mourning occurred it was the place where Yahweh himself had promised to live in the midst of his people so John in chapter 1 has already told us that Jesus is God's Passover lamb. And then Jesus goes to Jerusalem during a time when liberation and freedom and rescue from slavery were being celebrated. And John is saying this, that when Jesus went to the temple and what Jesus did in the temple... Um, gave new meaning to Passover, namely that Jesus is the true temple. Chapter 2, verse 19 tells us that Jesus says, Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Now we know from context that he wasn't talking about the physical building, but he was talking about himself. The word made flesh, the place where the glory of God has chosen to make his dwelling is the person of Jesus. And I would suggest that this is a significant redefinition of the meaning of the dwelling place of God. Now, the second one is the feeding of the 5,000 and we will get to that because that's our passage this morning. But the third time, Um, when John talks about the Passover is when Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time and it's so important that John actually mentions it three times Um, chapter 11 verse 55 chapter 12 verse 1 and chapter 13 verse 1 now throughout the entire gospel of John Jesus has spoken of his own death and resurrection And he has declared that the Son of Man will be lifted up and anyone who believes in him will have eternal life. He has spoken of giving his own flesh for the life of the world and of the shepherd giving his life to save his sheep. So Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time during Passover where the lambs were killed to celebrate God's promise of freedom. And John here is pointing to more than the events of just this week. He is pointing to events in all of eternity. What it means to be liberated from slavery and that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Complete redefinition of what Passover means. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the new sacrificial lamb. so we're back in our text now who gets frustrated by people who can't hold a conversation no one everyone's happy with people who can't hold a conversation (laughs) (sighs) (sighs) so conversations like tennis yeah I have a conversational ball and then I hit it to you and then you take that conversational ball and you hit it back to me and there's questions and answers and insights and all the fun stuff that happens in a conversation, yeah? Now, I remember someone telling, or I was listening to a podcast potentially, that it's like, if you're having a conversation with someone and you ask them five questions about themselves and they don't reciprocate by asking questions about you, they don't care about you, so you may as well move on, <laughs> right? Right? good tip stop wasting your time Um, but that's nothing to do with that thing here so the thing is in this passage Jesus is the perfect example of a bad conversationalist the people ask him several questions and make one statement and Jesus completely ignores their questions and he begins by giving them instructions and then answers that and the answers that he gives them are mostly corrections of their opinion the funny thing is this is completely in tone with the old testament so you know when you're you're reading the old testament and god's speaking to moses or abraham or david or whatever and he's asking whoever those questions you know is it true blah 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 the thing is god isn't asking those questions because god actually needs an answer God is asking those questions because he needs the people who he's speaking to to understand the question. It's a very, very different dynamic. So, when, if you've got God asking you questions about your life, he's not asking because he needs to know, he's asking because you need to know. It's very different. And Jesus here is doing the same thing, except almost in reverse. The people are asking him questions, but they're asking the wrong ones. And so what Jesus is doing is actually answering the right questions. Now, as I go through these questions, I wonder if we, just a little bit, can see ourselves in this. Just a smidge. First question. I'm not going to hit all three. Verse 25, Rabbi, when did you get here? So what's happened is that Jesus has fed the 5,000 and then the uh, disciples have crossed the river and then Jesus walks on water and then they all are like, hang on, you weren't with the disciples, how on earth did you get here? So the natural question was, well, how did you get here? Like, what's going on? The thing is, Jesus' response to them doesn't actually answer that question, but Jesus is addressing their materialism. Verses 26 and 27, Jesus' answer, they weren't looking for him because they saw signs. Oh, sorry, because they saw signs, but because they are looking to fill their stomachs. They are looking for physical pleasure, physical fulfillment. And Jesus is telling them that don't keep being motivated by your physical needs, but lift your eyes and your mind above the physical necessities of life. Who can relate? Second question they asked in verse 28. What can we do to perform the works of God? It's like, hang on, we know that there's something going on here. How do we get it? What do we need to do? I know I've asked that question. Maybe it's just me. But Jesus gets them to look beyond their own sense of self-sufficiency. Verses 28, 29. They want to know how to do the works of God. And from their question, they seem pretty sure that if they wished they were capable of doing the works of God. Who here, hands up if you think that you go, you can go to God, I got it. <laughs> Sorry about it. What do I need to do to save myself? <laughs> That's right. Anyone? Andrews, was that a, a, a subliminal scratch? No? <laughs> Jesus directs them to the gift of God that could only be obtained through faith in him. The people still want more signs. Feeding, of the, feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes was not sufficient as a sign that he had something to offer. Now, the argument goes in the text that because he'd crossed over, some of those people may not have actually been at the feeding sure maybe maybe not but this is where we run into a people and this is inclusive this is where we run into a people where minds are so locked into a way of thinking that we actually can't perceive what's happening in front of them They are attempting to evaluate Jesus against the ministry of Moses who had provided manna for their ancestors in the wilderness during the Exodus. Now remember, the Exodus is not a one-time event. It is something still to be entered into all the time. And the Jewish expectation was that when Messiah came, he would renew the miracle of manna. That the people would be comfortably filled with loaves. And the thing is, Jesus challenges them on that. They want him to give them a permanent supply of bread because that's what happened at the feeding of the 5,000. The thing is, the bread and the fish that Jesus distributed to the crowd's are not actually the gift. They were there to lead the people to the true gift of God. They were there to open up their eyes and to open up their understanding to the fact that the new Passover, the new Exodus, is happening right in front of them and that Jesus was leading it. This is the redefinition that John is doing here and Jesus is applying that to himself. New temple, new Passover, new manna, new feeding, new sacrificial lamb. And they were like the people on The Amazing Race. They were so fixated on the minute detail that they absolutely missed the majesty of the occasion. N.T. Wright wrote this. Here, his charge, so he's talking about Jesus. Here, his charge against the crowds is that the sign of the feeding is meant to lead you to to the true food, the food the Son of Man will give, the food which is Jesus himself. What matters is not just what Jesus can do for you. What matters is who Jesus is. Let me say that one more time. If you are writing notes, write this down and underline it. What matters is not what Jesus can do for you. What matters is who Jesus is. Only if you're prepared to be confronted by that uh, that in a new way can you begin to understand what he can really do for you, what he really wants to do for you. So I'm the bread of life what does that even mean verse 33 tells us that the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world so what is Jesus self-disclosing here he's self-disclosing this That he is the one described in John chapter 1 verse 1. That he is the word. That he is the one who comes from the Father into the world to accomplish his purpose. In this case, the emphasis is on nourishment. Until they recognize who Jesus really is, they may be fed with bread and fish but there is a deep hunger inside them which will never ever be satisfied. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 2 and 3. Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what is in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands he humbled you by letting you go hungry then he gave you manna to eat which you and your ancestors has, had not known so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of the lord even back during the exodus the people misunderstood what was actually happening It was all about that physical consumption of food. I would suggest, I've been to the Sinai Peninsula. There is not a tree. It is a horrible place. I can't imagine living there for a generation. So the idea that they would miss the point that he was giving them physical food is understandable, because when you're starving, any cracker will do. But even back then, god is actually saying there's something bigger at play here that you're not understanding and the manner was given as an object lesson lesson that the lord provides sustenance and not only is jesus designating himself as the word but as the wisdom of god coming to mankind He is the fulfillment of the law, which was given at Mount Sinai, and he is the giver of life both now and in the age to come. Jesus himself is the food, the sustenance that nourishes spiritual life. And it is only from this bread that humanity really obtains life. It is only Jesus that can provide sanctification and satisfaction for the human desire of life. Only Jesus. And you go, well, yeah, we're Christians, we know that. I said a prayer once. (laughs) Let's be reminded again that it is Jesus that we are constantly going back to and the thing is the people expect the same thing in verse 34 they ask it's like when they when he talks about the bread of heaven it's like give it to us again and again again and again and again but Jesus insists that he who comes will never go hungry it's not unlike John chapter 13, verse 9 and 10 that the person who has been washed by Jesus doesn't need another bath. Just need your feet washed again. So the hungry and thirsty person who comes to Jesus finds his hunger satisfied and his thirst quenched. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not a continual need for dependence on God or on Jesus for continued feeding upon him doesn't mean that you're one and done i said a prayer now i can go and live my life that is not what jesus is saying it does mean that there is no longer that core emptiness that the initial encounter with jesus has now met and we of all people should know what that feels like that there's this satisfaction inside that you actually don't need to go find looking for love in relationships or in your work or in money or in the definition of whatever the world is now telling us that's important. Um, Our satisfaction in and of ourselves is completely beyond that, or it should be. Becoming a Christian is described in a lot of different ways and here jesus speaks of coming to him which stresses a move away from that old life and its sort of beggarly famine and its total inability to satisfy and into an association with with christ that is so deep and so fulfilling that you look back at your old life and go what on earth was i thinking How did I ever think that that would ever satisfy? And the thing is, we almost hold on to these two worlds because the world that we're told to let go of is fun. It is. But there's this gradual level of sanctification that happens in our lives where you realise and you look back and go, wow, I can't believe that used to be fun. We went to, I actually didn't plan to say this, we went to an 80th birthday party yesterday at Lakers Tavern. Now, I haven't been in Lakers Tavern for 15 years. But when I was in my early 20s, that was my local. And my friends and I used to go there every single Monday night. And um, to the point where as we were walking in, our drinks were already on the bar. They saw us coming, and they knew what we were drinking. That was my life. Don't worry, I haven't been there for 15 years. i go somewhere else now. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> so, 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 but the thing, the thing is, so, like, we, like he had, a, like, a lunch and stuff. It was, quite frankly, full of old people, and someone's ear was ringing, and it was, it was so weird. But anyway... Um, but I went and ordered a drink yesterday from exactly the same spot where we used to sit at the bar. And it was sort of like such this surreal experience that this was a central hub of my life for so long. And now it's just this place that I used to go to. And it was, it's just not who I am anymore. This process of sanctification and gradually letting Christ open the doors of your life to do different things and to start to process your life in a different way. And so much stuff is way more important than now, than all of that stuff. Not saying having a drink with friends is unimportant, but all I'm saying is, that used to be the be all and end all of my world. I used to spend my entire wage every single week on alcohol. And in the week that I had to have my car payment, few here and there, because my car payment took up my whole wage it's life man but not anymore life changes sanctification happens decisions happen that actually reorientate your life to something this is what jesus is talking about here i'm gonna i'm gonna read this to make sure i get it right but this is something that i think we all need to sort of meditate on just a little bit to sort of allow us to understand what it's saying so understanding what it means that Jesus is the bread of life and moving away from the old life to the new life to understand what these what the people in this narrative are going through and the questions that they're actually missing it means moving away from acceptance of Jesus's competence on the basis of miracles to a commitment to not finally on the basis of miracles, but on trust in his person. Do you want me to say that again? Do you see the difference there? So it's moving away from acceptance of Jesus' competence on the basis of miracles to a, competent, to a commitment, not finally on the basis of miracles, but on trust in his person understanding jesus character beyond the acts of his miracles is where relationship with him comes from there's a difference between belief and faith now i remember as a kid um I th- I, i'm i'm you know when you have a memory of a conversation and you th- and you you it's sort of a bit sketchy. So I remember as a kid, I was having a conversation with a whole bunch of adults, and I think it was in an alpha. I don't remember, but I think we were doing an alpha. And um, we were talking about eating food that satisfies. And I remember one person saying that it doesn't matter what they eat, but it, if they don't eat potatoes, then it doesn't feel like a full meal for them. And I remember this other lady. Her name was June. She was from Myanmar, um, a beautiful lady, and she said the same thing, but of rice. She said, "It doesn't matter what I eat if I don't have rice. I actually don't feel satiated. Yep. I don't feel like I understand." And I know that different cultures have different things. Yeah. What is it for you? Something saza. We call it saza. It's more um, the consistency of mashed potato, but right. Okay, yeah. And I know that it's different around the world. I'm a boring English person, so it's potatoes for me as well. But um, <laughs> So the thing is, we all can understand that sort of concept that it's like a country, like a meal from my homeland or a meal that I was brought up on. If I don't have that, I can have whatever and actually be physically full, but I feel like there's something a bit missing, Yeah. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's talking into this. I'm actually almost done, mate. Um, He's simply saying this. It means that we are not satisfied spiritually unless we know Jesus. That we are not spiritually satisfied unless we have Jesus in our lives. Or to be blunter, we cannot survive spiritually without Jesus. Now, on our own, we try and fill ourselves with a whole bunch of stuff. We read books and we do podcasts and we do good Christian things. And they're not bad in and of themselves. But all of those things ultimately cannot and will not satisfy who we are. Only Jesus can do that. Now, to live physically, we need bread or noodles or rice or whatever the case may be. But to live spiritually, abundantly and eternally, we need Jesus, who is the bread of life and who is always ready to welcome us to his table. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that... You are so ready and so willing to satisfy our deepest hunger and our deepest need in your Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that we are able to get over ourselves our own focus on the physical and what we can see and what we can touch and what we can taste lord to understand that there is a greater calling on our lives that there is a deeper understanding of you and who you are heavenly father i pray that this morning that this revelation that you are the bread of life that it it doesn't just stay as sort of head knowledge that we understand something more about you Lord but it actually helps us to shift towards you to rely more upon you to give our lives more to you Heavenly Father you are bigger than our problems Father help us to understand you more that we can actually trust you with them Father, I pray for those this morning, Lord, that are feeling on the outer with you, that feel that there's this glass ceiling in between them and heaven, Lord, that they're able to see that you are right there, that you comfort people this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray for an abundance of your presence and abundance of your grace here this morning. I pray that as um your spirit flows here this morning lord that you speak to people where they're at as only you can do and that as you begin to transform our lives lord into something closer that resembles who you are that you do so only as you can do with love and grace In your mighty name I pray, amen.